Welcome to this podcast of the Sunday Message from Hope Gateway, a United Methodist community in Portland, Maine. If you live locally, we'd love to have you join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Visit our website at www.hopegateway.com to learn more. But whether you live near or far, we hope you find this message to be meaningful. Wherever you are, join us in doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. Hope Gateway. So you already heard a little bit of um, the preview, some spoilers from Erica this morning. Well, let's go through this story together. But first, I want to tell a little bit about um, a church I used to belong to before I was lucky enough to come here. Preserve me, O God, let not shame stand in my way, for I have no good apart from you. This was the first line of a song I used to sing at a church where I first learned to be a Christian. It was the kind of church with a four-piece band and charismatic worship leaders, and they always turned the reverb up real high, so everything we sang felt like it was echoing through a stadium. And so we would lift our hands and close our eyes, which wasn't that hard to do, because generally we sang the same words over and over and over and over. And in this case, those words were, I have no good apart from you. It was with equal parts passion and desperation that we sang them. I have no good apart from you. Meaning... Apart from God, oh, and this is us, back there. There's nothing good in me apart from God. Apart from God, there's no capacity to do good. And apart from God, there's nothing good in any of us. Apart from God, none of us have the capacity to do good. What we sang about so passionately wasn't uncommon. It was a symptom or a verbal manifestation of a belief that I think has deep consequences. The doctrine of depravity understands the Bible to teach that as a consequence of original sin, which entered the world when the first humans sinned, every person born into the world is morally corrupt, enslaved to sin, and is, apart from the grace of God, utterly unable to choose God or follow God or choose to turn to Christ in faith for salvation. It's a way of seeing God and seeing the world that says, none of us are trustworthy because all of us are broken. So today we're continuing our series on non-toxic Christianity. Last week, Pastor Sarah preached on the idol of Christian unity. And she said that sometimes the Christian notion that the church has to stay together through all odds and conflict actually leads us further from, not closer to, the kingdom of God because it asks the marginalized to, to stay silent in the face of their marginalization for the sake of Christian unity. So this week we're going to talk about another toxic Christian idea, the notion that humans are inherently evil and that only the Spirit of God can do anything good through us. 
It's important to have some standards, though, when we talk about which Christian beliefs and behaviors are toxic or non-toxic. Toxic Christianity is not just the stuff we don't like or we disagree with. It's not just stuff we're not supposed to believe because our pastor or someone else in the church told us not to believe it. And just because something is really, really hard to do doesn't make it toxic. So I think here's the litmus test that Jesus advised us to use. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And that's from Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Meaning, judge the truthfulness, the worthiness of a belief by the fruit it produces. The fruit that comes from believing in that belief and letting it play out through our actions. The fruit that comes from believing that we are inherently depraved, incapable of good, except through the Spirit of God, may produce some good fruit. Once in a while, we can all use a downsized ego, for example. But it also produces some pretty bad fruit. The doctrine of depravity, depravity sorry, is popular in Christendom today, and it has deep, far-reaching roots. The thing about living in the United States and being exposed to Christianity is that with all the good, we also get exposed to the bad, even if it's secondhand. Am I right? Depravity produces a slew of bad fruit. But the worst (laughs) may be these two. First, there's the notion that our choices and feelings cannot be trusted. And it leads us to believe that we and the people around us are incapable of goodness on our own. At the moment, we belong to the United Methodist Church here at Hope Gateway, which descends from the example and theologies of John Wesley. And if you're chuckling to yourself, then I invite you to stay for the 1230 community conversation. (laughs) For me, though, Hope Gateway has been a guide out of some of that toxic theology, including this one. One thing I learned about here at Hope Gateway is John Wesley's theological contribution of the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Whereas the tradition I used to belong to said that the Bible, or rather one person's interpretation of the Bible, was the only way to come up with conclusions about faith and about God, the Wesleyan quadrilateral says that we actually use four sources to come to theological conclusions. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. The result of people of faith sowing distrust in one another and encouraging each other to lean away from their own reason, experiences, and interpretation and tradition is that we are unmoored like a ship without an anchor or a tree without roots. In effect, the doctrine of depravity says that we can't lean on any of these legs of this Wesleyan quadrilateral. We become dependent upon and I think even hungry for, spiritual authority that lies outside of our own relationship with God and what we are taught in loving and accountable community. 
In effect, it instills a deep abiding doubt in one's own ability to make decisions, to co-author the kingdom of God, and doubt like that can be immobilizing. As I said before, the doctrine of depravity gives us permission to deem people as undeserving of love or forgiveness or grace. It gives permission for Christians to say that those people need Jesus, or that doing interfaith work obscures the gospel of Jesus, or that you can't do secular justice work, or that those who don't believe the right way don't deserve the same rights or protections or life that we enjoy. Because if they are devoid of the Spirit of God, or so we think, then what's left over in them has no use or value. And belief in depravity, I think, also makes us susceptible to charismatic Christian leadership. It makes it real easy for demagogues, cult leaders, and Christian authoritarians to grab the attention and loyalties of those seeking guidance and use that attention and loyalty for whatever ends they want, like money, power, or influence. Let me know if that starts to sound familiar. <laughs> when I first became a Christian, I inherited a slew of toxic theologies. But I don't think that that was unique. I think a lot of us pick up pieces of toxic theology along the way. I'm still training my heart otherwise, and it'll be a lifelong process as learning and transforming are lifelong for all of us. In my walk out of this toxic theology, I've had guides along the way, and Hope Gateway has been one of them. Another guide of mine said this to me when I asked her how specific she thought God's will got for us. She said, I think God gives each of us a box of watercolors, and it's our job to decide what we're going to make with it. And I think God's love is kind of like that, and it's the opposite of toxic. It's life-giving to see what people come up with when they're given the freedom to trust in their creativity. When I think about the people in my life who are parents, so many of you, one of the things that I admire about you all is your willingness to let children's gifts and time and imagination and passions run wild. And if you were here at the 9 a.m., then you would have seen that fully. <laughs> so another guide of mine along the way is a woman my mother's age who said that she waited a long time to have children. She waited until she and her husband were sure that they could love whomever God sent their way. They have a firstborn son whom they love dearly. And then they had a secondborn. Um, it was a long-awaited daughter. She wanted a daughter really badly. And God gifted them with a transgender son. And this kid has grown up fully knowing how beloved he is. And I think God's love is kind of like that. And it's the opposite of toxic. It's life-giving to see people share their whole selves with a world that desperately needs permission to exercise the expansive, uncontainable spirit within them. We can't be co-conspirators with God if we can't be trusted to do the creative and risky, courageous work of ministry, of healing, problem-solving and nurturing, playing and transforming. Because the notion of depravity, that people can do and be no good unless Jesus works through us, asks us to call into question whether we are truly guided by God or whether we are acting on our own depraved instincts. 
So maybe you're already on level 10, you're farther along than I am, and you already know that the doctrine of depravity doesn't work. For me, disbelieving in depravity wasn't easy. It's not all hashtag self-love, self-affirmation, blowing kisses in the mirror. And it may sound easy to shrug off those figures on your shoulders telling you not to believe in yourself, not to trust other people. But it wasn't that easy. First, it's risky to start trusting in your own instincts, beliefs, and abilities when your theology teaches you that you shouldn't trust them. It's kind of like learning how to swim for the first time. You know that there are folks around you who will catch you, but you're still afraid of drowning. It's a lot harder, I think, to believe the alternative to this notion of depravity that actually we're all complicated and good. We're all made in the image of God. It's harder than believing that we are all empty, just waiting for the spirit to bring anything worthwhile into us, kind of like a shell waiting for a hermit crab. It's easier to believe in clearly delineated lines of good and bad, wrong and right, us and them. Because to some degree, all of us have a better grasp on our own complexity. It's easier to believe in our own good intentions and easier to see our own human failings. But what I really want to say today is this. It's hard in part because the consequence of disbelieving in the fallacy of depravity is that we have to disbelieve that about everyone else, too. We have to believe that even those who are most unlike us, or those we call our enemies, even those who oppress, hoard, and dominate, even they have within them inherent goodness in the image of God as well. Sometimes I think God puts a message on our hearts because we're actually the ones who need to hear it most, and making it, it makes it a lot harder to turn back when you've said it out loud, so this is me asking you all to hold me accountable. So let's revisit that story that Erica told. I want to imagine ourselves in different shoes from the ones that we're used to. In the Gospel according to Luke, the author talks about a story that Jesus told. He said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? In the story of the Good Samaritan, we often ask ourselves which person we should be, the careless travelers who pass by a wounded person or the Samaritan. But I want us to imagine ourselves not choosing between the healthy travelers, wondering whether we would act charitably along the way. The question Jesus asked 
was to a man who was beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. Who would he call his neighbor? Who do we call our neighbor? Or let me ask the question a different way. It's often said that Jesus broke down walls and challenged the constructs of his time. One way that he demonstrated this was that he dined with prostitutes and tax collectors alike. And in a place like Hope Gateway, it might be pretty easy for us to see that, of course, Jesus would dine with prostitutes, with those who are marginalized to the point that they are often written all the way out of the Bible. But it might be harder to stomach that Jesus also showed compassion and love for the tax collector. Tax collectors were disdained by the Jews of Jesus' day because of their perceived greed and collaboration with the Roman occupiers. It's like saying in our day that Jesus even had compassion and love for corrupt politicians or lobbyists. Jesus would even have had compassion and love for the greatest polluters of our planet. Of course, as Sarah said last week, sometimes love requires us to tell hard truths to the people that we love. So the question today isn't who we're going to be like on the road, but whether we can see any good at all in the people we've been taught to disdain or we've been conditioned to distrust. Can we? Is there any good in them? Do you see the image of God in them? Because we have to concede. If the image of God is in us, then that image of God is in everyone else too. Full stop, no exceptions. We have to concede that if we are complex people with backstories and fears and desires, and we are both imperfect and holy, then so is everyone else. Sometimes it's easier to believe that all of us are depraved, that in the people who most confound us, the spirit of God is neither present nor working, or someone forgot to turn it on. It's an easy shorthand, I think, for the defensive heart. If folks hurt us, it's because they're bad people. If folks act or vote or spend their time in ways that confound us, it's because they're bad people. What we say when we relinquish the doctrine of depravity is that we dare to recognize the image of God in one another and that there are no bad people. Because if we cannot see any good in others, in the people most unlike us, then what's worth loving in one another? What's worth beholding? Jesus dined with both the prostitute and the tax collector. He spoke comfort to the marginalized and he challenged those who had power. He saw the potential of their inherent good. And in the careless doctrine of depravity, we deny our own and others' inherent good. We mischaracterize one another, and by doing so, we mischaracterize God. But if we're to take seriously that, as Jesus said, according to the Gospel of Luke, the kingdom of God is within us, then within us, and even within the people who most confound us, is the potential of our inherent good. The notion of depravity says that people are like mud, not worth much except for maybe some stray diamond that may or may not be in it. But the belief that we are all made in the image of God says that people are more like riverbeds, mixed up together with gold, lined with stones that are beautiful, with water running over us, 
always changing us, always shaping us. All of us are walking down the road to Jericho, all of us walking with each other. And all of us at some point are going to get battered by this road and wounded. We're going to get cheated and robbed. We're going to get dusty and thirsty. And we're going to trip over our own two feet. And some days, unexpected angels will gather us unknowing and bring us in for healing. When we awaken, will we recognize the unexpected people who carried us? Their feet will be dirty like yours. Their faces will be leathered like yours. They'll be common sinners like you, and they'll be common saints like you. For none of us are beyond help, but also none of us are beyond helpfulness. None of us are depraved. None of us are unmarked by God's great craftsmanship. All of us are made in God's image. The notion that all of us are depraved, that we can do no good except what God does through us empty shells, is a toxic one. And it's important to call out toxic beliefs, not because we want to believe all the right things, or that there might even be a slate of right things to believe, but because the fruit of our beliefs is our actions and their consequences. If we believe that people are depraved, that we are or that other people are worthless except for the parts of us that might be like God, then that's how we're going to treat ourselves and that's how we're going to treat others. But if we believe, as Jesus did, that the image of God is in all of us, then we have to treat each other that way. We have to treat ourselves that way. And we have to treat those that we'd even call our enemies that way. Pat Anderson, the editor of Christian Ethics Today, wrote in an article, Jesus calls upon his followers not to produce believers or knowers, but rather to nurture and activate disciples who do what Jesus said. Love neighbors unconditionally. Welcome strangers. Protect vulnerable people. Condemn hypocrites. Expose liars and thieves. Practice nonviolence zealously. All of us are infinitely holy and capable of evil. All of us can do commonplace good, and all of us can do commonplace harm. It's not just the Spirit of God pulling our strings like some kind of cosmic puppet master. It's interwoven into every part of us. It's who we are, made in the image of God. Amen. Amen.